Welcome to Shiloh Church. We hope you enjoy today's message. If you are in the Jacksonville, Florida area, please join us for worship or watch our services online at shiloh.church. Thank you. Bow with me again. Let me pray. Touch even now, O Lord, by your quickening power, By your amazing grace and by your sparing mercy, we pray. Amen. While you're standing, would you turn to Isaiah 53? Isaiah 53. Beginning at verse number one. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant And like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God and the church said amen. You may be seated. I want to label the message a song for the substitute, a song for the substitute. Isaiah 53, the book of Isaiah, I should say, contains 66 chapters. The Bible contains 66 books. The book of Isaiah is divided into two main sections or testaments, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament, and similarly, the book of Isaiah is divided into two major sections. Chapters 1 through 39 
warns sinful people of coming judgment. Chapters 40 through 66 offer the comfort of hope that God will restore His people by His sovereign grace and power. Isaiah 53 sits at the center. It is the heart of this message of comfort. Moreover, Isaiah 53 is the heart of the gospel. The fact that this chapter is central to the message of salvation by faith in Christ is indicated by the fact that portions of this chapter are recorded at least 85 different places in the New Testament. I repeat, Isaiah 53 is the heart of the gospel. If you want to know the facts of the life and death of Jesus, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But if you want to meditate on the meaning of the life and death of Jesus, read Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is one of a series of passages called Songs of the Servant or Servant Songs. These servant songs are recorded in Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 through 9, chapter 49, verses 1 through 13, chapter 50, verses 4 through 11, and chapter 52, verse 13 through chapter 53, verse 12. The previous songs leave the identity of the servant shrouded in mystery. But it is here that it is clear in Isaiah 53 that this servant is not another way of talking about the nation of Israel. The servant is a person, not a people. And the identity of the servant is made clear by his work of substitution on the behalf of the people. Isaiah 53 is a celebration of what is called the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. This celebration takes on the poetic form called encomium. An encomium is an ode to a great and heroic figure. This form of poetry is used ironically here in Isaiah 53 as Isaiah presents for us the unheroic nature of the one God sent to be a mighty deliverer. The poem begins in chapter 53 at verse 1 with two questions. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The first question is an exclamation. Who has believed what he has heard from us? The last verse of chapter 50 Two, that is, verse 15 declares that the kings of the nations of the world will ultimately recognize the true identity of this servant who has come to be the Redeemer. Yet the people of God would not recognize this Redeemer when He came. In fact, in Isaiah 6 and 8, Isaiah hears the Lord say, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Isaiah answered, here am I, Lord, send me. In the next verse, Isaiah 6 and 9, 
The Lord says, go to my people and say, seeing you will not perceive and hearing you will not understand. At the very beginning of Isaiah's ministry, God made it clear that he was to proclaim a message that people would not receive. Now in chapter 53, he looks back over his ministry and Isaiah asks incredulously, who has believed our report? Answer, very few. Praise God, friends, that on this Easter Sunday morning, there are millions of people around the world who are celebrating the crucified and risen Savior, Jesus Christ. But unfortunately, there are many millions more this morning who do not believe. Some in this room who have heard the gospel and refuse to believe. Isaiah says, who has believed what he has heard from us? And then his second question in verse 1 is an explanation. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is an idiom for the saving power of God. The power of God is described here as the arm of the Lord. Psalm 8 verse 3 says that God made the heavens by the work of his fingers. Exodus chapter 13 verse 3 says God delivered the children of Israel from the land of Egypt by his outstretched hand. But Isaiah 53 verse 1 says, when God redeems sinners like you, he flexes his mighty arm. Romans 1.16 says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. But Isaiah says, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The people of Israel looked for God to flex his arm by sending a political and military conquering hero. Instead, God, watch me, flexed his arm by sending a carpenter from an ancient ghetto called Nazareth. And the people missed their Savior when he came. Isaiah says why that is. Look at the end of verse 1. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The gospel is not what you always thought. To understand the gospel, it must be revealed. Romans chapter 10 verse 17 says, For faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. In verse 1, Isaiah laments the fact that people cannot see and cannot hear and will not receive and understand the message of salvation. But in verses 2 through 6, he tells us how we ought to respond to the life and death of Jesus Christ. This may seem to be a strange way to present the message of the gospel on Easter Sunday morning, but this text is the heart of the gospel. And hear me, friends, you cannot celebrate the significance of the resurrection until you embrace the meaning of the crucifixion. You can't shout about Easter if you don't know what happened on Good Friday. 
Here Isaiah simply says, praise God for the life and death of Jesus Christ. First, he says, praise God for the life of Jesus Christ. Praise God for the life of the substitute Jesus. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 and 14, Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? What are the people saying about me? They answered, some say you are John the Baptist, others say you are Elijah, still others say you are Jeremiah or one of the prophets. This was the truth, but not the whole truth. To honor Christ, the disciples conveniently omitted the negative things people called Jesus. But 700 years earlier in Isaiah 53, Isaiah, the prophet, honors the coming Christ by taking a blank look at the negative way people viewed the coming of the Messiah. In verses 2 and 3, we see a contrast between the divine reality and the human response of Jesus Christ and His life. First, Isaiah shows us the miracle of Christ's life, the miracle of Christ's life. Verse 2 says, He grew up before Him like a young plant. Note that phrase, He grew up. This tells us that the arm of the Lord, verse 1, is a human being that grew up like other human beings. And the fact that he grew up before the Lord tells us that this arm of the Lord is to be distinguished from the Lord himself. There is a specific, special person Isaiah is talking about here, and Isaiah says that when this arm of the Lord showed up, people rejected Jesus for two reasons. First, his birth, his boyhood was unimpressive. Look at verse 2 again. He grew up before him as a young plant. The term young plant refers to a tender plant in the early stages of development or a little child nursing at his mother's breast. The agricultural image is what Isaiah intends here, but both pictures are meant to convey the frail, normal, unimpressive boyhood of Jesus Christ. Jesus was born by a teenage virgin in Bethlehem's barn because there was no room for him in the inn. And when he was born, they wrapped him in swaddling clothes. We say, oh, that's so sweet. No, it ain't. <laughs> swaddling clothes were grave clothes. Listen, the baby Jesus was dressed to die. When we think about Christmas, we think about the virgin birth, shining stars, angelic announcements the worshiping wise men, and the astonished shepherds. But beyond these initial phenomenal events around the birth of Jesus, his boyhood was unimpressive. Jesus was just like any other child that had to grow up and learn how to walk and talk for himself. His boyhood was unimpressive, but his background was unlikely. Look again at verse 2. He grew up before him as a tender young plant and as a root out of dry ground. 
Seed must be planted in fertile soil to grow and bear fruit. Roots out of dry ground wither and die. But the Bible says Jesus was like a root out of dry ground. He had a traceable ancestry. And if you trace the background of Jesus's lineage, there was nothing impressive about the background of Jesus that would make you think he would be somebody special. He was like a root out of dry ground. He's like a plant that grew up on the sidewalk. You wonder, where did that come from? In John chapter 1, verses 44 and 45, Philip says to Nathanael, We have found the one that Moses and the prophets told us about. His name is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael replied to Philip, can anything good come out of Nazareth? His boyhood was unimpressive. His background was unlikely. But in this blue-collar worker from an ancient ghetto called Nazareth, God was flexing his mighty arm to save sinners like you and me. Isaiah shows us the miracle of Christ's life, but then he shows us the misunderstanding of Christ's death. Humans are made in the image of God. We bear the marks of divine personhood, meaning we have mind, will, and emotion. Because of sin, these attributes have been perverted, and we use them in rebellion against God. And Isaiah says in verse 3, this is especially true of how sinners responded to Jesus Christ. He says sinners reject Christ emotionally. Look at the middle of verse 2. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. This is, this is how people responded when they saw Jesus. They just emotionally responded by looking at him and saying he has no form. Military heroes, political figures, social movers and shakers looked apart. Jesus did not. He had no form. He had no majesty. Kings look and act and talk like king. Their, their apparel their company, their trappings all point to royalty. Jesus did not. He had no form, he had no majesty, and he had no beauty. King Saul was such a handsome man that the Bible says he was head and shoulders above the rest of the men of Israel. And King David was known for his good looks, not Jesus. We call him the Rose of Sharon and the Lily of the Valley. And the fairest of two, 10,000. But when people saw the soft sandaled footsteps of Jesus in Galilee, they looked at him and said, no form, no majesty, no beauty. He had inward beauty. He had inward beauty because the Bible tells us in Matthew 11, verse 29, I am meek and gentle in heart, but sinners reject Jesus on superficial terms. No form, no majesty, no beauty. They reject Jesus emotionally, but likewise, sinners reject Jesus willfully. Look at verse 3. He is despised and rejected by men. Despised means not wanted. When Jesus showed up, people looked at him and said, we don't want him. He was rejected. 
That word rejected means to cease or to cut off. Can you imagine? This is how Isaiah pictured how people would treat Jesus when he comes. When, Je- when sinners saw Jesus coming, they said, stop, don't come any closer. I don't want anything to do with you. Jesus' own family rejected him. They thought he lost his mind claiming to be the Son of God. His disciples rejected him. Judas betrayed him and the others ran out on him. And Peter denied he ever even knew Jesus. The whole nation of Israel rejected Jesus. John 1 and 11 says he came to his own people and his own people did not receive him. As a result, the Bible says, look at verse 3, he was a man of sorrows, he was acquainted with grief, and he was as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Look at that phrase again. He was as one from whom men hide their faces. Think about that. The life of Jesus was to the unbelieving mind like a terrible car crash, so bad you cover your face so you don't see the carnage. But listen. Jesus wasn't the one with the problem. We were the ones who needed the jaws of life to save our souls. Jesus was the sovereign insurance agent who showed up on the scene of the crime to deliver us from what our bad driving of life had produced. Praise God. For the life of Jesus. But then Isaiah says, praise God for the death of Jesus. There are some scholars who say that Jesus intentionally manipulated the circumstances of his life so that he would appear to fulfill the predictions of the Messiah. He manipulated his ministry to pose as the Messiah. Okay, but if He manipulated the circumstances of his life. How in the world did he manipulate the circumstances of his death? I submit that he could not unless he was God. This is what verses 4 through 6 claim. There are three facts about the death of Jesus in these three verses. The first thing Isaiah tells us is that Jesus died as our substitute. Verse 4 begins with the word surely, which is an introduction to an affirmation with an element of surprise. You all thought he was nobody, but surely... He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. Here we see the true meaning and the twisted meaning of the sufferings of Christ. This fourth verse pictures what happened when Jesus was taken up the hill called Calvary and crucified on a cross. The true meaning is that while they whipped him up that hill, he was bearing our griefs, and when they nailed him to the cross, he was carrying our sorrows. Listen to me. This is, this is a two-word summary of what sin brings to a life. Underline it in your Bible. Griefs 
and sorrows. That's all sin produces. And that's the dilemma of every one of us. All of us. I don't care how dressed up you are today. All of us have griefs and sorrows. It's inevitable. Nobody can hang a sign in their front yard that says, no hurt here. All of us have griefs and sorrows. Don't look at me like that. If that's not you now, just keep going to bed at night and waking up in the morning. All of us will experience life's griefs and sorrows. Wait, we'll experience griefs and sorrows that we cannot handle on our own. What are you to do with life's griefs and sorrows that you can't handle on your own? I'm glad you asked. Isaiah 53 says, give them to Jesus. He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Listen to me. Jesus can handle your hurt. Matthew 11, verse 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. But that's not how the unbelievers saw Jesus. Look at the twisted meaning of his sufferings. Still in verse 4. We esteemed him as stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was suffering for us, and all we saw was the suffering, and we said he was stricken, smitten, and afflicted. The unbeliever has one thing right there. Listen, he was smitten by God. God smote Jesus. God struck Jesus down. God afflicted Jesus. Don't be paying attention to the soldiers whipping Jesus and nailing him to the cross. They couldn't have done that if the Father didn't let them do it. I, I, I hear Jesus saying to Pilate that you can only do to me what my Father permits you to do. No man takes my life. I'm just laying it down. And the proof that I'm laying it down is when I get ready, I'm going to pick it up again. The unbeliever is right. God smote Jesus. But the unbeliever is wrong about why it happened. As you look at this beat up rabbi, bloodied, carrying a cross up a hill, being nailed to the cross, you would think that he is afflicted and smitten and stricken because he did something wrong. The unbeliever is like Job's friends. You remember Job's friends? Job was suffering, and Job's friends showed up, and they said, come on, Job. Come on. Come on. Tell us what you did, because you had to have done something wrong for God to treat you this way. Isaiah says, this is how the world sees Jesus. For him to be stricken this way, he must have done something wrong. But Isaiah says, that's not what happened. He was stricken, afflicted, and smote by God. Because he was bearing our grief, and he was carrying our sorrows. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says it this way, that Christ also died once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. Christ died as our substitute. But secondly, verse 5 says, Christ died for our sins. But he was pierced for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquity. This verse describes what will happen at the cross 700 years before it happened. First, he was pierced. Literally, he was pierced through with a death blow. They nailed him to the cross to execute him. But then he was crushed under the weight of the guilt of our sins. The physical agony of the cross was so bad, they coined a term to describe it. It's excruciating out of the cross. But the spiritual agony was even worse. In Matthew 27, verse 46, Jesus cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The reformer Martin Luther sat and looked at that verse for hours and then got up bewildered, saying to himself, God, forsaken God, who can make sense of that? We don't, we, we don't understand what happened, but we do know why it happened. Look at verse 5. He was pierced not because he transgressed. He was pierced for what? Our transgressions. He was crushed not because he had iniquity, but he was crushed for what? Our iniquities. Note those words, transgressions and iniquities. Those are synonyms for sin. Transgression means to break the law, to cross the line, to go beyond the boundary. When I was a boy, we lived next to an old man who would always tell us boys in the neighborhood, don't play on his grass. And, of course, we would play on his grass just because he told us not to. That's transgression. It, I know what the boundary is, but I'm going to do what I want to do anyway. But we also have iniquities. The word means to be bent or twisted. It's the inner perversion that makes me inclined to do wrong. Or if I could say it this way, we have a virus in our software that makes our hardware malfunction. We have iniquity, we've committed transgression, that's the bad news. Here's the good news. He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquity. Look at the rest of the verse. This next phrase. Watch what happened when they was whipping him. Listen. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. I love my little sister, but I've never loved my little sister enough that I was going to take a whipping for her. <laughs> what? No, 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 no. You get your own whoopings. I don't want nothing to do with that. But this is what Isaiah says, the chastisement, the discipline, the whipping that brought us peace was laid on him. He was whipped so we could have peace. And with his stripes, we are what? Healed. Faith teachers hijacked this verse to guarantee that every believer can live healthy and wealthy and successful. We even misinterpret Matthew 8, verse 17 to prove this error. Matthew 8, verse 17 is clear that Isaiah 53, verse 5 is fulfilled in the healing ministry Jesus performed in his life, not in the atoning sacrifice he made at his death. Be very clear. Jesus, I'm not saying Jesus is unable or unwilling willing to heal. Mark my words. Jesus is a healer. What I'm saying is this fifth verse is not about 
physical healing. It's about spiritual healing. I don't care how much your body suffers, you still got a bigger problem. We are sin sick. No hospital can treat it. No medicine can heal it. No doctor can cure it. All of us have a sin sickness that is contagious, painful, and fatal. Our only hope for salvation is that he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquity. Upon him was the chastisement that brings us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. He died as our substitute. He died for our sins, but he died by the sovereign will of God. That's verse 6, and I'm through. Verse 6 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. This is another way of describing our sin problem. First, it describes our sin nature. You want to know what our sin nature is like? Listen to Isaiah verse 6. We like sheep that go astray. The Lord says the Bible is the good shepherd. That's wonderful. But the Bible also says we are rebellious sheep. We have a feral instinct that makes us bolt away from the shepherd and go our own way even if it gets us into danger. All of us are like sheep. You can wake up in the morning determined to do what is right, and before the morning is over, you have gone in the wrong direction. We are just like sheep that are prone to go astray. That's our sin nature, but look at our sinful ways. We have all turned turned denotes deliberate rebellion. So, there are sometimes I intend to do right and miss the mark, but the word turn means there are other times I don't even intend to do right. <laughs> I just want to do what I want to do. This is us. Note the corporate culpability we have turned. But then look at the individual responsibility. We have turned every one of us to his own way. All of us are guilty sinners. Romans 3.23, unless you've been playing around with your Bible, that verse doesn't say y'all have sinned. <laughs> it says all have sinned. We are all guilty sinners who fully deserve divine judgment and eternal punishment. There is nothing we can say or do to merit the favor of God. Our only hope is that God would provide a substitute to pay for our sins. This is what verse 6 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity 
of us all. Who did it? Listen, the Lord did it. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. The cross was not what man did to Jesus. Listen to me. The cross was what God did to Jesus. At the cross, God through Christ was doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. That statement summarizes the distinction between the old covenant and the new covenant. The Old Testament and the New Testament, law and grace. Listen, under the law, sheep die for the shepherd. Under grace, the shepherd dies for the sheep. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. <laughs> God does not allow us to shift the blame to others when we do wrong. But what God does not permit, God performed. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him to be sin who knew no sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God, at the cross, treated Jesus as if he had committed all of your sin, so that through faith in Jesus, God can treat you as if you had performed all of the righteousness of Christ at the cross Christ took your place so that by faith, we can take his place. When I was a boy at funerals, I'd go to funerals with my dad that he had to preach, and they'd often sing at those funerals, let the work I've done speak for me. And when I understood the gospel, I made it clear, don't sing that at my funeral. Because if my works speak for me, I'm in a whole lot of trouble. Let blood speak for me. Let Calvary speak for me. Let Jesus speak for me. Our only hope is that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Y'all not excited about that because you, you, you say, well, how do you know HB all of this stuff? How do you know that what's written in Isaiah 53 is truly about the life and death of Jesus? How do you know all of this is about Jesus? I'm glad you asked. Y'all got to come back. I love preaching to you. You ask all the right questions. You help my sermon. Let me tell you how we know Isaiah 53 is about the life and death of Jesus. We know because... After he lived, and when he died, he didn't stay dead. God affirmed that this was his mighty arm because the crucifixion was followed by the resurrection. Good Friday was culminated with Easter Sunday morning. Isaiah 53, verses 13 and 14 says, For I delivered to you of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose from the dead in accordance to the Scriptures. Here are the fundamental facts of the gospel, church. Jesus 
lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose from the dead. Wait, no, here's one more. He rose and he's alive and well. I said he's alive and well. I said he's alive and well. When the women came to the tomb of Jesus at that Easter Sunday morning, they found that the stone had been rolled away. And the angel that moved it was sitting chilling on the stone. Just chilling, waiting on them to show up. And when they were weeping, he said, why are you crying? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here, but he rose like he said he would. We know that Jesus is Lord because death couldn't keep him in the ground. And if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be. Thank God for shall be's. Not may be, not hope to be, not might be. You shall be saved. I got to quit. I got one more sermon to preach. I got one more thing to show you before I leave you. Can I show you one more thing? Just look at verse 6. Help me close the sermon. What's the first word of verse 6? Good. What's the last word of verse 6? All. All we like sheep. But he laid on him the iniquity of us all. The verse starts with the all of condemnation, but ends with the all of salvation. It begins with an all of judgment. It ends with an all of redemption. It begins with bad news, but it ends with good news. It don't matter what you did in the first all, if you could just get to the second all. Woo! Thank you, Jesus. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Sinners can plunge beneath that flood and lose all their guilty stain. Anybody glad about that? D.L. Moody was catching a train to go to preach. But as he was on his way to catch his train, a young man ran up behind him and said, Mr. Moody, tell me what must I do to be saved? Moody didn't have a lot of time, so while he was catching the train, he just yelled back to the young man, go home and read Isaiah 53, verse 6. Enter in at the first all, and then come out at 
the second all. And sometime later, Moody got a letter from that young man that said, I'm the man that you met at the train that day. And I just want to tell you, I did what you said. I read Isaiah 53, verse 6. I went in one all as a sinner, but I came out the other all saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Is there anybody here that can thank God that no matter what you've done, if you run to Calvary, his blood is able to save your soul. Have I got a witness? It reaches to the highest mountain. It flows to the lowest valley. The blood that gives me strength from day to day will never, ever lose its power. If you believe it, give God praise. I didn't say for me, I said give him praise. Give him praise, church. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For contact information, ministry updates, as well as our live Sunday morning broadcast, please visit us online at shiloh.church. Thanks again for listening. Have a blessed day.